is the Rugby Centurions podcast. Welcome to another show with me, Martin Cross, and Rugby Centurions, Chris Evans. Sean Lamont played for Scotland 107 times after making his debut in 2004. A powerful winger, his 100th cap came in the Rugby World Cup 2015 victory over Samoa, becoming only the second ever Scottish player to achieve that special landmark after Chris Patterson. His younger brother Rory was also a Scottish international, the pair running out alongside each other on a number of occasions. He also represented his country in the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in 2002 and at home in Glasgow in 2014. After hanging up his boots in 2017, he worked with Scotland's academy players before transitioning to become team manager and strength and conditioning coach with the Scotland Sevens team on the HSBC Sevens World Series. But we began our chat focusing on his other passion, a vintage red 1967 Ford Mustang Coupe. I bought it as a present to myself from a 100th cab just after the uh, Rugby World Cup. And I think I've driven it twice and twice it broke down on me. <laughs> and are you actually hands-on? Are you sort of, you know, mechanics-wise, do, do, do you get your hands in the grease there? Uh, it's just little things. I, I've pulled the engine out myself. I'm trying to rebuild it myself. There's a, I say a few things are done. But yeah, I, I plan to get it up and running. I've seen plenty of videos, do lots of YouTube in and thinking, oh, I can do this. And then this will take half an hour. And then six days later, three years later, it's still in the same bloody state out there. So it's... The Mustang's not massive, but it's just that the sound of a good V8 when it was running is real. It's, it's nothing else. And you, you always see people when you when it was out in the road, you get people like putting the thumbs up, and you do. And because it's such a a rare car over here, like you do get people looking at you and all that sort of stuff. It's just something about just that sound, the V8, and you, and I think the, the big one for me, you need a screwdriver and a wrench to fix it. Really, it's not. There's no electronics in it. There's no computers. And it is literally stuff you can do yourself, generally speaking. So, and that's the thing. It's certainly helped me at home. I do my own discs and brakes on my other cars as well. It's just given me a bit of confidence to do, I suppose it's, it's old man points, isn't it? It's, your dad can change change the oil and do all this and do all that. And it, ah, it's just a little bit, it's fun. It's another project. It's like some people do woodwork. I, I do do the car. Very tenuous link in terms of rebuilding engines. Your, your your role now is a strength and conditioning coach for for Scotland Sevens. Yeah. How did you? How did that come about? Was that something you you'd always had in mind when you quit playing? It wasn't. That didn't come around until actually very late in the day. I was. It was my last contract with Glasgow in Scotland. I actually had put in my contract that I wanted to be an SSC coach. I'd always been always enjoyed that aspect of rugby. I never saw myself as much of a a technical coach. So going down the actual rugby coaching. I was always quite a physical player myself. And I just enjoyed that side. I really enjoyed my gym work. And just for me, it seemed like a natural progression. I was I don't think I had a full exit plan at that point. It's probably a little bit of fear keeping me going in the sport for as, as long as I did. And there's still still relative enjoyment. That's like there's parts of rugby when I was close to retiring that I hated. There's parts of it I still loved and still love today. And there's still parts of thinking like guys ask me where to go back and like that. No. I served my time. But yeah, so it just came to concert negotiations and obviously as getting older, the wage was coming down. I was thinking, right, let's pad out this contract saying, right, I can't get a job after this. And obviously the SAU were very accommodating and said, because I had my degree before rugby started, I got 
my degree out of Sheffield Hallam. Um, I graduated in 2001. Um, they said, if you get UKSEA, by the time your contract's up, we'll give you a role. And then it just went from there, retired, started with Glasgow Academies, helping out there for a few years, got pulled into help in the World Cup prep, well, Six Nations first and into the World Cup. And then off the back of the World Cup, I was actually sitting, just after we got pumped out of the, the World Cup, I was sitting, I think we had three or four days of layover in Japan before we could get flown out. So everybody's obviously absolutely moods flying. And then I speak to Gav Scott, who's, who's team manager for Scotland, but also does uh, a lot of stuff down the union. He said, the Severs job is coming up and would you be keen to do it? And I said, absolutely, because I love I love Scotland Sevens. I've always loved the Sevens because that's kind of my big launch pad prior to the, the 15s kicking off. So when that came up, I said, absolutely. And then, so I started that in the November after coming back from uh, helping with the World Cup and then got to March and then everything lockdown came. Bit of a convoluted way around of it and explanation, but that's, that's what it was. And it's interesting. I think there's many players that find that transition from, you know, elite sport onto the next phase of their journey you know, quite a challenge. Yeah. You, you talked there about some of the, you know, still loving parts of the game, but parts of the game you, you sort of hated. What, what, could you just explain a little bit about, you know, w- what that looked like, what that felt like? So the bits, the bits you love, it's your teammates you love. The camaraderie there is like no other you get. And the, there's every, working for the same goal, the old cliche, you go to battle every weekend with, and you put your body on the line with your mates and they're putting the body on the line. It's that one driven, Focus, but that you can't take. You like that's why you, you make mates throughout the your career, and they stay your mates. And it doesn't matter how long you, you spend away from them. As soon as you come back, you you slot back in. It's like nothing's changed. But obviously, the other side of that is that fighting for your place every weekend, the lows of losing a game at any level. Again, I've been in Scotland teams where it's like wooden spoon, and or I've been with Northampton when they got relegated, and it's like they can come really dark days, like emotionally and that side of things. Like, and if your own rugby is going really well, it's almost a little bit of a cushion, but if your rugby, if you're not playing well either, and then you're, you're fighting for your contract every two years, it's, it can be a lot of a hassle. And then on the other side of that as well, is they also, like if you move clubs a bit, it's upheaving your family. Uh, obviously my missus was with me the whole time. We moved from, Northampton to Scarlet's when I think my youngest had only been well, it was like two or three weeks old and we're in the middle of moving. But at a point from leaving Northampton to go to Scarlet's, I had signed in all but principle to sign for Breathe. So I think it was not long after I had my ACL in end of 2007, start of 2008. So it was the next season I'd been back playing and Breathe scanned my knee and they failed my knee. So this was 2009, I think it was, when I left there. So I'd, everything was done. No other, it turned out loads of other contracts going to breathe. They have scammed my knee and then they fail it, saying, you'll never play another season. And obviously this was in 2009. So here it was, turned out loads of offers. It was actually quite late in the day. I think it was April, May. So contract time, you're thinking, other teams are getting sorted. And then... They pulled the pain on medical grounds. So there was with nothing, young family, two kids, wife, no other offers on the table. It's like, God, it's like, things like that. It's like nothing wrong with my knee. Obviously it showed. I played another eight years on after it. 
But it's that point where you're set up and then all of a sudden it's gone. What the hell am I going to do? I mean, luckily after that, I mean, Scarlett's, Scarlett's came back to the table and I ended up going there and it was, it was a great, I think it was probably the right decision. Family-wise, going to Wales and France, but it's things like that. It's little, these little things just, it's not like a normal job where you've, you've got a job for, for life, whereas it's either two years, three years, but it's the kind there's many battles every weekend to play. Loads of things like that, just the arguments you'll have with coaches or all that sort of stuff. The pressure from outside media as well, I think it's probably worse now um, with guys on, you've got to be very careful on social media. Like the amount of times I know guys that have been on and off social media, like people coming at you and you end up just have to go on private profiles. And it's enough of people telling you you're crap if you have a bad game. It's all that sort of stuff. It's, 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 it's part and parcel of it and you've got to learn to deal with it. But certainly at that point is that sort of stuff I, I don't miss. I really don't. It's just all the nonsense that goes with it. And the worst bit, I suppose, is waking up the Sunday morning feeling like you've been hit by a bus, absolutely battered, and then you've got to get up and go do it again. And when you're young, it's pretty easy, but I remember as an older site, right, I played on Saturday. It's now Friday. I must be feeling better by now, but still feeling absolutely hit by a bus. It's, uh, and that's it. But if I got asked to do it again, I still would. Yeah, it's still it's still burning there. I think from from what you're saying, those sort of losses, I guess, maybe get harder to deal with. You know, at, maybe towards the end of your career when it's a little bit more challenging physically and mentally. But when you're in those dark times, whether it's relegation, wooden spoon, injury, what is it that you do to get yourself back up, Sean? Because you know the amount of caps and what you have achieved is incredible. So. How did you do it, I guess, is the question. I suppose most of it, for most of it, because I love playing rugby. I love the, the it's challenge. And the highs you get in rugby, although they can be fleeting, they are, they are bloody high. Like when everything comes together, you have that great game or great performance, whatever it is, either as individually or as a, as a team. I suppose that's what it is. The good side is actually really good. And don't be wrong, it's not that, like, with rugby, I've been to some beautiful places right, around the world, Samoa, Fiji, Australia lots, New Zealand, like the places you go and the opportunities you get to see around the world. Rugby provides nothing like, there's nothing else in the world that can provide those sort of environments. You, you mentioned, yeah, it felt like being hit by a bus every weekend. How did the physicality of the game change from your early days, you know, 2004, your first cap, how did it, by the time you'd left, had the impacts become much, much greater? I think so. I just because I had almost, my career sort of bridged the early days when it's only been pro for five or so years to close to where it is now, you definitely notice today the game was faster. Obviously, everybody was more professional just because of time spent being a professional sport. You know, obviously, defences get better, so it's harder to break down. So there are more impacts, more tackles. Techniques get more effective, not necessarily safer, but they get more effective for doing whatever they're doing. And obviously you see it now with the red cards that have been going showing that there has been a lot more rugby trying to protect stuff. But you've you got better quality players. You can see it, I think, Scottish national team, you can probably see it as our transition. We create now better rugby. There's better rugby players. Like We had good players throughout my career, but I see myself like, if I try to get in the Scotland squad now, even at my peak, I don't think I'm making it. 
we just for us and that's the thing by more time spent you get guys that come up fully through full pro and obviously coaching's got better nutrition's got better SSC's got better it's just a more professional sport as a whole so from that you just get guys that can hit harder tackle better run further run faster and and do that more repeatedly so and that's it I think it's just a full it's definitely a, a more professional environment all around and you just get a much better standard of player and how are you how are you developing that Sean from your you know the strength and conditioning perspective how are you developing that that next level athlete a lot of it comes from either just data collection from GPS I'm not the biggest one on GPS I always had it used against me like you're not running far enough it's like that. but that's thing obviously with the event of professionalism from the S&C side you you collect more stuff and, and find out what works and you see that this team that do really well, the, the, the guys can hit this level of fitness. And that's down to, obviously, these levels of strength. Like guys get SSE side, like, boys that are stronger generally, like they're more robust, which means they get more game time, which means they can become better players. If you are not gym, gym strength is so much, but if you can't handle the weights of players that are coming out, running at you, if you're not strong enough, you will break. Just the impacts, you uh, you get a normal person off the street who's not used to, either not strong enough for gym-wise or used to rugby, and you get 120-plus prop running full tilt at you, however fast it is, just the impacts, people would break. So that's the thing in the SSC, it's making sure guys are strong enough, they're fit enough, they get the right nutrition, all that sort of stuff, so that they can keep going week in, week out. And how does it differ for sevens players? Because they're very different re- requirements for sevens games. And um, how do you prepare a sevens player in contrast to 15s? From the S to C stance, and, and you can see from the game, sevens is just a faster game. Obviously, it's 40 minutes in duration, but the intensity the guys run at is like no other sport. It's almost a completely different sport. And I think that's why it has was growing so well around the world. It's so exciting. And that's the thing, it's short and fast. And obviously, you get some games in 15s where it's nil-nil at halftime. It's been absolutely attritional. And game is slow and dull. And it's like, what the hell am I watching here? Whereas you never get that in sevens. It is literally end-to-end stuff. It's exciting. So did you prefer playing sevens? If sevens could have played like 15s did, 100%. Would have stayed like, and it's not just about that, but you make a career of it. But again, yeah, like, I love the sevens, and it's always it's always going to have that sweet spot in the heart because, like I said, it was that that launch pad, and especially as a, a fat one, well, I was fast, a fast back, um, having that open space and the, the challenges that the, it is such an isolating sport. If you can't, if you don't have good enough skills either in passing or defence you get shown up and there are some rapid boys out there, especially now. I mean, you look at guys now compared to when I started and it's like, they are so much fitter and there's some fast guys and there's some big fast guys as well. And like I say, it's just the running, the high speed running demands is so different to 15s. Because again, in 15s, you might be making those big fast breaks maybe uh, once, twice a game if you're lucky. Whereas in sevens, you're doing it 20 times a game. And that, that's if your team's got the ball. If you haven't got the ball, you're having to work really hard. It's just, although it's seven minutes each way, it is so much more intense in terms of the top end stuff. Okay, it's l- less in duration, but 
yeah, the, the top end. You couldn't keep going at that pace for any longer than 14. We've got the Olympics uh, hopefully on the horizon. Team GB, it's going to be. It's not going to be Scotland, England, Wales all competing separately. That's going to be an interesting dynamic, bringing all those players together. It is. Um, well, yeah, I should say, I suppose it's the, the equivalent in the, the Lions and the 15s, isn't it? Minus Ireland, obviously. Um, but obviously, we've got eight, six or eight guys in, and I'm so chuffed for them. But it really doesn't mean a lot to them just getting back in, especially with the, the way that it has been broken, obviously, with COVID. The international travel is an absolute zero. So the fact that this Olympics is definitely going ahead and it gives these boys a chance to um, get some sevens again, which they all love. But obviously, representing GB and being able to go there, and I know a couple of guys, Mark and Mark Bennett, who um, got the Olympic silver last time round, and they said it was beautiful. Uh, brilliant. And that's what an achievement to say you are an Olympic medalist, even by any standard, just to come away as an Olympic medalist is pretty special in the sporting world so our guys the guys that are going are, are super stoked and it shows I think we've got because we've got quite a high number of players obviously England got the, the biggest group of players but we've still got a fair number of players going it's a, a testament of where the Scottish Sevens was and is going so and that's the thing it's, like, it's great it's not just your, your token effort of a couple of guys okay they're not on, on the squad yet but it's on the greater squad but I think it shows where how much we've progressed as a as a nation and on that on that side of things both and both sides I think even from the, if you look at the time scale from last Olympics even the 15s the team's doing so much better than it was so it's good it's good for Scottish rugby and that's the thing it's like good for the, for the guys as well and I'm chuffed for them because they are good they're a great bunch of like our team spirit and this Scotland count seven slot is the best I've been around like in terms of just the, the diligence to the work rate the on and off field stuff is phenomenal. It's one of the best sort of environments I've, I've worked in. And do you see sevens? You you mentioned there it's almost a separate sport. So it's not really now a pathway for younger players to transition into 15s. Because if you look at the All Blacks, nearly all of them have played under Gordon Titchens in the, in the sevens circuit. Whereas yeah. England, it's hardly any now. Rory McConaughey has come through of late, but... Do you see them as separate or do Scotland see it as a pathway? Well, Scotland, the st- our stance is that it's a pathway. And I definitely think it can. It's, I think England probably don't use it as well as they, they could, in my opinion, because if they don't use it as much as a pathway, then and there are some niche positions. Some guys will be excellent at sevens and never make the 15s transition. But obviously going back to my own experience, I use it as a the pathway. I think especially with young guys, if they're on that fringe of a 15 squad and they're not getting much action or they need a bit more game time or whatever, but they're really talented, especially as youngsters. And you always need the core of older players for experience in the sevens. You definitely need a core group in the sevens. But you can get loads of guys that come through the sevens. I think it's a great development tool. Your passing's on highlight. You've got big, some big passes. Your fitness is tested. Your top speed's tested, both in attack and defence, like learning to shape a defender so you can beat them or also not getting triple set by somebody as, as a defender. Um, I think it's a, a great tool for blood and youngsters. And we've had a, a few guys come through and obviously Mark Bennett's made sevens and fifteens. Uh, George Collins at Glasgow are the same. There's lots of guys that have come through the, the seven system and are now good fifteens players. Certainly I feel in Scotland it, it helps us because 
because we've only got the two pro teams, we're, we're quite a small pro rugby population. So any avenue to create more scope for players to grow is, is a must. For me, it's a, an open-mindedness of the 15s coaches to see these guys. I know 15s is so different, but at the same time, these guys have that massive potential from being exposed that you get big crowds like Hong Kong's a massive sellout. So you can deal with the pressure and getting up for three games over uh, a day over a full weekend. It, physically, it's a demanding sport because it is that high intensity stuff. And that although the impacts are not as frequent this, because of the high speeds involved, the impacts and the tackles and impacts on the ground are quite severe. And certainly you get some hard grounds out there that always get up battered because it is just either scrapes or it's falling heavy on the ground. And then, But then they've got a couple of hours break and they're at it again. And then waking up the second day and you've got to gear up to go that top end event. It's not like you're just plodding along going for a, a friendly jogger in the park. It is back into full competitive sport for another three rounds at least. And it's like, and if, if anybody can survive that sort of rigmarole, then moving to 15, Deans should be should be fine for them, but yeah. So for me, sevens is a great development tool if used correctly and and valued. Obviously, been through different sides of uh, of the sport, but now sort of you know sort of an out- outsider looking into that SNC coach. What what have you learned since you've been not on the pitch, or what's what's been quite enlightening to you? Just I think how much work background staff put in. The coaches are in and some and things the players don't see. Coaches are in from like seven in the morning all the way through to seven at night, either discussing player selection, analysis. Same with the physios. The physios are generally the first ones in, last ones out because A, they treat the boys, guys that need to get treated for prior to training, but then all the notes they have to write up at the end, the planning that the S&C do. So I think as a player, because you can be quite self-involved as a player because obviously although it's a team sport you generally you look out for number one because if you're not top of your game then you won't get picked and you won't get another contract That's so you do have a slightly selfish outlook I know you have your teammates and as a players you're all a very tight group but then sometimes you can forget about the workloads of like all the backroom staff from uh, people in the kitchen like cooking meals like they're there cooking meals for the whole squad or physios that have to nursemaid some guys all the way through stuff so that and that side of thing that's probably something I didn't quite fully grasp certainly not as a youngster because that's something just not on your radar you're just like oh play rugby yeah play rugby and do you do you have a philosophy Sean that in this sort of in the role that you undertake is there a you know your way of work if you could describe how you how you work with the players now is there a philosophy that you've got behind it I think the biggest one for me I think I'm quite empathetic like I understand either what we're going through, they're feeling sore. I'll not, there's times to push them and there's times not to. Like I understand if guys haven't been playing, they get a bit knocky or if they're just off the back of a tough game, you can't be demanding of them much. But it's more the fact I can still have conversation with the players like like a player. Again, some guys won't open up to coaches because they're scared of saying the truth. Whereas at the moment, I feel I'm kind of, a bridge between both camps. I've got a foot in both camps and still, I think that's, that's what again, somebody says, like you are the bridge between the players. They'll probably talk to you more than they would another coach. So I think, so again, because SNC is that middle ground, even as all SNCs, you kind of have that middle ground that's between like, we are looking 
out for you. Right, totally. Right. Because it's the whole physical preparation stuff. It's regardless of whether you're doing the right thing, the coach has seen you do the right thing. You can always be physically prepared whether you're playing well or playing not, as long as that sort of thing's sort of sorted and you got your house in order and that side of things. It's, it's that whole, I suppose, just a different level. It's obviously layers of management, but I think the S&C and certainly physios can be a lot closer to players and necessarily need to be at coaches. But obviously, that again, we are that bridge between the, the players and the coaches. They always say that the physio room at any rugby club or on in, in any environment to do with sport is where they're all, the physio or the masseur can often be almost someone just to unload onto. Do, are players a bit more open to that now in terms of mental health and, and sharing a bit more? Oh, definitely. I think that's one of the things that has been highlighted in the, the pro year, the, the mental health side of things. So that's a, a big factor, not just from guys that are playing, current players, but guys who retire. And I know once they've finished, either whether it's been on their own terms or retired through injury, I think guys that retire early and through injury actually are a lot worse. And it's it's quite a major thing. So you have your social bubble that is the rugby players, especially if you've been at a club a long time. It's you see guys you see every day, you go to battle with, you spend a lot of time with, and then guys that finish rugby often go off and do a completely different job. And it's office environment and then all their close mates that they don't generally see because they might have weekends off and the guys are playing. So you, you don't have time to go out and catch up for a beer or this. So the isolation that comes post-rugby can be quite severe. And I think a lot of guys struggle with that lack of social group. And that's, that's a big thing. Like Humans are social animals, generally speaking. And you have your a lot of social crutches that go on and having that tie severed, it can be a, a real shock to the, to the system. How do we, how do you manage it? Sure. I mean, you, you've been through it. I know you, I guess you're back in the fold a bit with the, the role that you undertake, you know, you've spoke about, you know, some of the, the low places uh, towards the end of your career, the, you know, the lowest of lows, but how, how did you manage those challenges, you know, and, and what can the sport all the clubs do to help players going through those challenges today? My lucky side is that I'm still in the sport. So I still have all those social connections, really. Although it's not on the same level, like there's still guys, like there's a lot of guys that I still have interactions with. And because it's where I am, the S&C role, it's a bit more still your mate. There's still, there still has to be that professional boundary. But I think certainly from an S&C role, those, those boundaries are a lot shorter. So, that's a massive crutch for me. And we all go through things. I, I was furloughed for a bit and I, I struggled with being furloughed. Like lots of folk have. Why did you struggle? What was, what did you find tough? For me, it was like, because I was a player, I found being furloughed, like not being picked, that horrible reminder of, I want to play, I want to be involved. And it's like, I'm not. So again, it's one of the, a lot of dwelling and thinking, ooh, I need to do, be doing something. And then obviously when you've not, with your idle hands, it's like your mind starts to wander. It's just... One player told me that one of the hardest things to accept was um, actually being deleted from the WhatsApp group. Yeah, it's little things like that. It's like you've been removed from this group. It's not even like you can have a chance to say, oh, guys, good luck, best of luck. It's like <laughs> you've been removed from this group. It's like that. Absolutely dropped like a newborn giraffe. It's like, no thanks. Um, but yeah, it's that whole absolute sudden, like one weekend, you're in the group. Monday morning, yeah. you're gone. It's And it's... 
I think that's the other thing is because it's a professional sport, it moves on so quickly without you. The next hottest guys come through and it's like, that used to be me. I used to do that. But it's like, ah. Yeah. Listen, when we, when we caught up with John Schmidt, he was talking a lot about um, the importance of um, surrounding yourself with the right people. And George Gregan talked a lot about that and was like this inner circle that I guess helped you through the, the tougher times and also that celebrating the good times as well. Who's been in your corner, I guess, through that, that sporting journey and then and as you've you know you've come out of playing as well my wife's probably my biggest support she's been with me since university so that's she's always been and been with me everywhere so that's always been a big one it's family my mum my dad again my dad was a coach growing up as a teenager uh, through my teens as my under 30 started my under 13s coach and um so for me the family is a big a, a big support player wise obviously my brother was both family and that uh, um, I was always a big one playing with him and it's, it, there's still guys that I have regular contact with which which helps and other things so I'm always in contact with Mr Stuart Hogg he and I were quite close not very close when he came through and obviously I was being a bit old uh, an older player sort of I was, uh, trying to help him and mentor him as best I could and those guys you, you, and it's the same thing it's that you're close mates you always have a close group of mates that's like I said earlier it's the ones you don't see for ages, and then you slot back in, and like nothing's changed, like, and that is like you've not been apart, and that, that's the ones that's the support group you need, and like I said, that is great providing you can actually get in contact with those guys. But some guys, when you're out of sight, or and a phone call might be okay, but again, same with the, the things with phone calls is you lose the sight of people's body language, and that's the big one. It's like. They might say, oh, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'm doing really well if I'm on the phone. Whereas if you see them face-to-face, you can tell that they're not doing well, especially if you know people really well because you know their mannerisms. And when you see them face-to-face and you just know, that's where you can probably ask that question. Are you actually okay? And when you're not in a big social group, so it's not a big crowd, but close personal friends, you get close, you can actually have those conversations. And that's... I think it is. It's, it's important to have those conversations because it's that reaching out. And everybody talks about the men holding it in and not showing these emotions, but some, sometimes it is important to reach out or in both sides, like either reach out if you're struggling yourself or if you think somebody is struggling to, to reach out. Because I say, if these are truly your mates and, and you've spent a lot of time with and gone to battle with, then you've got a, 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 you need to do that. In terms of what rugby can do, I think certainly clubs, and it becomes difficult when people move a lot, but I think clubs can do more in sessionally through the academies, making sure guys are actually educated because rugby can stop anytime. You could be the most up-and-coming youngster and think you have a bright career ahead of you. Then bad injury, one bad injury, and you are no longer a pro rugby player. And if you've not got any fallback in terms of either a degree or skill like plastering, joinering or something like that. It's another vocational skill, then it can be really tough, especially going from if you're earning quite well to real world wages, it can be a, a real shock, especially when it's boom, done. It's like one day you're earning this and next year got nothing or you're, you're scrabbling to, to find something. So I think definitely uh, it becomes tough because obviously it's time, but again, 
encouraging these young guys to get those either degrees or courses or classes or whatever and, and supporting them through that and allowing them a bit more time to do those things. Just lastly on, on this um, subject, how hard was it to see what your brother went through and did you know at the time? Um, I didn't oh, I did know. Um, just so, Sorry, just for the listeners, um, your brother Rory, when he finished playing, uh, really struggled with depression, I suppose is the right word. Yeah, it was. Um, it was it was quite scary, but we were worried for him at one point. And he, when he was around 98 kilograms when he played, I think he got down to 78 at his lightest. And he looked ill with it, like wasn't eating properly. Um, and he, he'll admit it, like he was really struggling after it. I think the big one for him is because between the injury and then losing his contract and certain things like things get out of control and you just can't, you don't know how to, to stop it. And he, like I said, he really struggled. He got quite isolated, like he wouldn't interact with people very much. And that was obviously the big warning signs. And you see as as a family member and certainly your brother, it's like, it, be, it becomes really hard to, to see. And also, I know I was talking about reaching out, it's actually quite hard to do anything with, especially when you're not trained with it. But again, it's, as much as you can to, to help. But yeah, like for Rory, it was, he really did struggle. But And he's much better now, which is a good thing. But it, it just took a lot of time for him to uh, to overcome that depression and get some, I think, perspective in life um, in terms of... Because when you're in the rugby, it's like all-consuming. Like, I want to be this, I want to be a rugby player. It just try to do everything and that, that's gone. And then try to find another... Focus. And I think Rory said he lacked a focus after finishing, like retired with his injury, had a career-ending insurance, which obviously helped financially. But at the same time, it was probably a bit of a crutch and allowed him to become really isolated because it didn't need to get a job, as it were, because the insurance was paying for it. But at the same time, because there was no job, there was no no real social interaction. It become quite reclusive in the end, and I think which obviously that downward spiral made it worse and worse. And obviously he tells it a lot better than I do, but but he's got through that now. He's much better place mentally. I think he's found a bit of more of a focus in life, and he's he's like I wouldn't say he's completely out of that, but he's a, a damn sight better. He's his actual health is back to normal now, and that's the big one. Like he had all sorts of like. From the stress, I presume, is like dietary issues and like not being able to eat very much without causing all sorts of issues and all that sort of stuff. But and that's the thing is, I know I say it, I can probably list, I won't list, but I'm probably list five, five or six players that I know through that time that have really struggled. I mean, everybody has the moments, but I know five or six guys that have really struggled. So it is, it is tough, and it is again because you threw yourself wholeheartedly into sport. Uh, both physically and mentally when that is severed it, it can become tough it's interesting Sean thanks for sharing that we I think we were on to it was Nathan Sharp a couple of weeks ago we were talking about a similar subject in terms of that mental health and how do you prepare yourself for uh, post-game life and, and he said actually it's quite difficult because when you're a player you, you don't 
really have the time to put aside to think about, you know, if you're trying to be the best player on the pitch, trying to be the best, you know, in your country, the world, whatever that may look for you in terms of your purpose, it's really difficult to then, you know, start thinking about other focuses and priorities in your life when you're so competitive. And like you said, towards the end of your career, it was like, I'm playing for my place week in, week out. So actually the time to commit energy must be quite, must be quite difficult. Well, it is. To reach the, the top, top levels, you are, you're watching videos, you're, you're making sure you're eating right, you're not necessarily going out. Like, there's no, so many things like family functions you miss, like either weddings or friends of weddings. And that's how the social things, which obviously then erodes your social ties a little bit because, oh, well, you never come to a wedding or you can't do this. It's people that would be your, your wider support group, you sort of, not a seven, but you know, it's, it, it runs out a little bit and it's because that's, that is a choice you make and people go, oh, the sacrifice you make is, can't really look at the sacrifices, choices you make. But if you really value that, then you would, you'd go to the wedding, but then it's that whole, well, I'm going to play this weekend. And it is down to yourself, it is your choices. But again, if you want to make it at a top level, you need to make those, those choices. Uh, it's, you hear about guys missing the birth of their kids because they're playing at a weekend and the game's away somewhere. And you know that you're going to be closer on this date, the wife's going to give birth, but then you know at the same time, it's like, I want to be there, but I have to be here as well. So it's yeah, it's all those little things. Like To be that top-level pro, then you have, you have to make those little choices that mean you're, you're maximising your, your ability to be the best you can be. You're listening to the Rugby Centurions podcast with me, Martin Cross and Chris Evans. Well, let's go back, um, Sean, to your debut. Now, if I was choosing a debut, a big Samoan winger facing me might not be my ideal start. But you made your debut against against Samoa in June 2004 down in New Zealand. Get your memories of, of that occasion. That is probably the one game I remember quite well, because for me, it was a a dream come true. It was a realisation of an absolute dream like to play for Scotland. Again, a, a big tour. For, like I was only involved in the one game before that and that was against the, the Reds, I think it was. And I, obviously, I, I proved my worth because I think it was like in the midweek team that weekend and then I was starting for Scotland in my first cap. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'm going to score a try on my debut and get held up over the line. It's like that. That's kind of set the tone for my scoring strike rate for Scotland. I think I think 14 in 100 caps is absolutely fantastic rate. But yeah, like for me, it was an absolute honour. I remember when the team was announced, absolutely shaking my... That was the year, I think, there's a few of us that all got capped around the same time. I think myself, Graham Morrison, and certainly Hugo Southwell, because Hugo Southwell came on for Chris Patterson, who... You're talking about big Samoans, he ended up fracturing his cheekbone, I think it was. But yeah, it was a, uh, a great time playing in the Hurricane Stadium. How was it on, the, on that, um, Sean, on that sort of first cap? Did you feel you were at that level? Did you feel like on that international scene, is that, did it feel like a step up or, uh, yeah? Because I guess, you know, we've spoken to some of the players and it said there was definitely a, a difference, you know, putting on the international jersey for the, for the first time and even for their first few caps even. I didn't feel enough for the first game against Samoa. I think I was just too wrapped up in like, here's my chance. But then I think we had quite a, a tough run in that year. We like played Samoa, 
well, I'm sure I played Aussie twice. And I think I played out my first four caps or five caps. I played like Aussie four times. So it was, you think you'd know them. But again, at that point, Aussie were putting a lot of points past us. And it, it was quite tough. Um, obviously, the first cap was good because we ended up beating some more. I think in terms of a, a, a blooding as a first cap, that's quite... Quite a nice one, 30-odd points to three wins. It's like, yeah, 100%. Not many Scots boys can say I'm 100% wins for Scotland. What about blonde hair? Where did, how did that all come about? That actually started at university. Um, was this all about looks enhancing? No, at that point, it was just one of these stupid things students do. Like, we are going on tour, I think, to Benidorm as a rugby team, that well-known rugby hotbed. <laughs> who, who chose that, Sean? <laughs> no, not guilty, not guilty, but... <laughs> With it, so the t- the tour rule was you either come with dyed hair or shaved head, and that was it. That was that was the two options. And there were some guys that came with neither, and they got taught a lesson very quickly that you need to obey these two rules. And again, it was it was old school university, so you know the sort of you know, imagine the, the sort of nonsense that went on. So out came the the peroxide bleach, and you know put it in my hair and after that it just sort of stuck around I thought yeah I can do this and kept going with it for a while and this ended up being the hairdresser and she put the old cap on I went to some point buy the hairdresser cap that you pull the, old, the highlights through and every now and again you get a little top up and just a home ball and sometimes it turned like absolute disaster and like I was like oh god I'm gonna have to do this again and that was it how it started and then obviously the rugby kicked off and people in fact I had it at Melrose Sevens the year I got picked up for Scotland Seven. So again, it's that horrible yellow colour because it wasn't done. It was a home job, so it was not done at all well. But then it's sort of the highlight because I don't know, it just seemed to stand out. A stupid yellow hair seemed to stand out quite well. And that's one of the things like I'm sure other people are playing as well as me, but because what I was doing and yellow hair is one of those things that just got you highlighted. No, no pun intended. And I just sort of kept it. I thought, yeah, you know what, it works for me. And then every started going, pressing, saying Bond bombshell and all this sort of nonsense. And I thought, ah, I do know what, I'll keep it. It can be my little trademark and, and run with it. And you enjoy reading those newspaper, the newspaper clips. Is that uh, is that something you did? Reading the no, uh, I, the ratings in the game and you know admiring the pictures, or was it not at all? I hate my own press. I did not read any of it. Um, I. There's a box for somewhere, but I'd, I'd never look at them. I'd never have. And also, I hated... I, in fact, I remember my brother... We both both hated these rings that I attended. used to get in the, the Telegraph and the Scotsman and all that sort of stuff. It's like, were you actually watching the same game as we were watching? But I remember my brother, after one defeat, I can't remember who it was against, and all these newspapers came out the next day. And it was before iPads and everything else. And so it was obviously old-fashioned newspapers. And there was only about 20 of them in the team room and they were all slating us and guys were reading them. as like, my brother walked around and literally scooped up every single newspaper and just threw them in the bin. It's like, guys, you can't be reading this. This is some, these external factors don't mean anything. It's some non-involved opinion. And when it comes down to it, it's either what your mates thought you played or what your coaches thought you played. And that's all that counts. And for me, it was, as long as your mates thought you played okay, then, because they were on the field at the time, then that's the biggest one. And obviously, you want to play again the next week, so you hope you played well enough in your coach's eyes. But a lot of the time, like 
people that watch it as a supporter, they don't see all the undone work that you do when you go through analysis. Like, this guy made a ruck clear. But you don't get applauded for a ruck clear, but that ruck clear allowed us to retain ball and then go and score like two phases later. And if he hadn't done that, and it's a sacrificial and unselfish act, then we're not winning this game. But the press that like the, the highlights sort of stuff, they don't they don't see the, the groundwork. So and that's the big one. So yeah, God, I hate I hate those mode press and does your does your sort of confidence no good? And for me, in rugby, confidence is massive. Like you could be the world's best player, but if you ain't confidence about making that pass, then you don't make that pass or you make it badly. And social media, Sean, must have multiplied that by a thousand in terms of looking at comments after matches. That's dangerous, isn't it? Oh, it is dangerous. Unless, unless, but even then, I was going to say, unless you are one of those guys which is completely water for ducks back. But even that, I think when you read these things, and you might joke about them and not take them serious, but reading them, they, they do sneak into your subconscious. Becomes very dangerous. I know loads of guys that have been after a bad game have come off social media mm-hmm. for like a month just because they've been absolutely slated. And guys that are getting slated, go understand that your your teammates know you had a bad game. You know you had a bad game, but your players and your they understand sometimes these games happen, and you can't you just can't go right. In the same way that sometimes you have games where you are untouchable. You also have games where it just doesn't go right. And, ju- and just talking about that feeling, that sort of untouchable feeling and confidence, I saw a great picture of you, uh, you know, with your kids on that 100 cap moment. Yeah. Um, it looks truly, truly incredible. It must be an incredible memory. Could you just tell us a little bit about that day and how it felt, what it meant to you, what it meant to your family? Uh, again, that 100th cap, it was a big goal for me. Um, especially when you get to the higher numbers. But at the same time, it's one of those ones, that's, and Chris Patterson said it a few years before, like everybody's getting applauded, it's only 100 caps, it, and they just turned around and said, it's just another game. Uh, you can't be seeing it as a, it is a big landmark. But again, when you get that high number of games, you, you realise it's it's another game. And yes, it's a great achievement, but in that moment, you know you've got a job to do. And with Scotland, once you reach certain numbers, so, you get a name imprinted on your, your shirt, embroidered down the bottom. It starts off as white. You get to 50, it gets to silver. And then at 100, it gets to gold. And I was coming off the bench, so the shirt I had on was just still in silver, obviously, because I hadn't, wasn't on the pitch. I hadn't got my 100th cap yet. And I thought nothing of it, really. And then I was getting ready to get on the pitch. And then John Pennycook, the, the kit man that was there, whips out the the embroidered shirt. So they had the, the second shirt ready for when I took the field and got behind the cap with the gold writing on it. It's little things like, little touches like that that really make it there. And I think the other thing of was, it was at a World Cup and it was against Samoa again, which again was 150 and 100, um, all against Samoa. So it's, it's quite nice. And obviously having all the family there, my folks were there, um, the in-laws were there. Obviously, my wife and kids were there. So yeah, I mean, it's, and that's the thing. It's one of those things for me. Yeah, it was a it was a big achievement, and it's something that nobody will ever take away. But it's also like a recognition of all the work that's gone on behind behind the scenes, like the fact that Gemma had come down there and brought the kids and 
I think it helped because it was in Newcastle. And it's it's nice to be able to share that moment because of everything my family sacrificed over my career to celebrate that with me. And it's it's again, it's it's still quite an exclusive club, the old Centurions. It's people still say even now, hundred caps is really good going. It's that I suppose it is really. But again, like for me, it's not necessarily about chasing caps. Uh, I think you, you speak to anybody that's there and done that. They don't. They don't think about chasing caps. It's like you're representing your country, a sport you love. And I think for me, once playing for Scotland was gone, I think that's when I was ready to retire. I mean, I had one more year playing at Glasgow, but if you speak to like even what I'm saying myself, it's like the drive was gone. When Scotland was gone, the drive was gone. Your hundred and first cap was the Rugby World Cup quarterfinal um, against Australia. A very controversial match. There was a very controversial refereeing decision right at the end of that match against Australia. Australia won by point. It was one of those ones like, you can go on about coulda, shoulda, wouldas, and you can say, oh, if that hadn't gone through, Scotland could have been in the final against New Zealand because Australia, uh, Argentina were battered by that point. And we knew it because we'd seen, that I think they played before us. And we knew that they are missing so many of their players. And we're always quite close with Argentina. I think a tour, a tour a couple of years before, we were going out to Argentina, won all our games out there. So we knew uh, for all the teams we played against, we had a great chance against Argentina. And then it's like, we could have been Argentina and that would have been Scotland in the final, making history. The, the furthest we've ever gone in a World Cup. And to have it done on such a close game and such a, Awful, well, I say awful decision. It was awful, but you know what I mean. It's a decision from a ref with TMO, and it was controversial. And I'm saying, I think he's even apologised after it. But look, mistakes happen. Like, I would have rather been absolutely destroyed by Australia, 50 points to nil at that point, because then it shows that we wouldn't have deserved to carry on. But to have a, a big hoo ha that, which takes away from a little bit of our achievement, because we played, but the boys played bloody well in that game. Could have made something really special. I, I can forgive people for making mistakes, and it's what happens. Yeah, it's a little bit frustrating, and obviously a, a big memory and sort of things like that. But the other, other World Cups, the 2007, it's my first World Cup, so I was again over the moon in France, just again still quite relatively young. And that was the year we all got massive as players as Scotland. I think I went from about 98 kilograms to 105 because we, I think, for the first six so weeks of pre-season training camp didn't touch a ball we were just in the gym because like, the plan was just get every big because I think I was off the back of obviously South Africa winning it two thousand uh, well the year before we the, South Africa had done something got massive and then we just gone right we're going to follow soon get everybody massive I remember Jason White the skipper at the time and he just come back from the ACL and he was massive an absolute behemoth and I think there's one Six Nations video of him hitting a flarty and absolutely ending him. And Jason could hit hard. But that's the rumours of that one. And then the 2011 one was disappointing because that was the first time we didn't actually qualify for the quarters, I think, ever. And it's like that. To be part of that team was like, I don't want to be remembered as that. I remember again, there's a few ones like that, a few times that we've given, I think, Tonga. I was on the pitch the time we gave Tonga the first winner for Scotland. And it's all these like really poor records. Is that like, damn it? 
Might have to be involved in that, but that's definitely some of the low lights. But yeah, like, World Cups are special. Um, again, I was pretty lucky to do three as a player, and then a fourth as a assistant SNC. So it's they're always special, like, especially when you're international. Like World Cups are, are probably the only time you get a really good preseason. So in terms of development as a player and as an athlete, because obviously if you're if you're playing international regularly, you go from domestic season straight into international with maybe a couple of week break and then you come off the back of tour you then have another couple of week break and then you're back into playing again so you never your season never really finishes I mean that's again one of those demands of when you're top level you're in demand and it's nice but at the same time it is a lot of work because your seasons never really end because it's just you roll through and through whereas when you get to a World Cup you actually get a dedicated block to actually make a physical difference or School is different. You can get a long time just together as a group, which again is needed. And every team does it, and they all prove that's what makes the World Cup so good because teams that don't normally get together get together and everyone gets stronger. So, and that's the thing, that's why it's like summer tours and autumn tests are, are good spectacles, but World Cups are another level. Looking back at the rugby centurions, you know, our values that the players feel very proud of sort of selfless commitment, courage, respect and resilience out of those four Sean which one sticks out to you and, and why what's the most important one that, that you feel I res- you know, respect is always a big one but regardless of who you are having a respect for another person or either what they've achieved or just who they are as a person is a massive one and I often say that things like respect are hard won and easily lost if you're not careful so that's like and same with resilience like to make it to be involved in the centurion you've got to be fairly resilient as a player both mentally and physically because rugby is it's a tough sport and if you're not either respectful to your teammates and resilient as a, a, a person you then you don't build you're not able to ever reach those top level things and like you said it's all these little sacrifices you, you make to get there it's like it shows that people are both those have good respect for the, the team and the involvement and those around them and the resilience to keep digging in and get there. And I think that for me, those ones are the two ones that are the key throughout life. Respect those people around you. You don't have to necessarily, from a rugby aspect, you don't necessarily need to get on well with the coach necessarily as a, as a personal level, but you've got to respect them as professionally. And same with the other players. There's sometimes players you just don't get on with just because of personalities. But then you still have to respect them as a rugby player. And it's one of whether or not you'd have socialised with them or on or off the pitch. Or but they are in the same thing as you. They want the same thing. And they're, they're, they're driven. It might be slightly different ethos to you, but respect what they're doing. They're still working hard. And similarly, the coaches, coaches are working hard. They, they want to win as, as much as the players. It's their career. So that professional level of respect and being able to understand that and not take criticism poorly is a big one. And if you were to look back, Sean, um, just to finish, um, if you were, if you were to give advice to a young Sean Lamont now, 12, 13 years old maybe, what would you sit down and tell them? Work on the skills, because at the end of the day, that is, for rugby, the most important thing. If you're a most skillful player, then from a physical aspect, I can we can work on that. That's fine. Um, I suppose from life, it's make sure you get your balances right and... As much as this game is a career, it's it's still a game. 
like as much as I love it, it's take it serious, but you've got to understand that once you're finished, there's a lot more to life than just rugby. That's the big one. It's like, because it is so, it can be all consuming, but you're done by 35. If you live to 80, 90, there's still a lot of time. Like you're 15 years, there's still a lot of time outside of that to live, basically. The sight of Sean smashing his way past defenders in full flow with his blonde peroxide hair is one that will be fondly remembered by Scotland fans for many years. We hope you enjoyed the programme and please do rate and review the show wherever you're listening to help as many listeners find out about it as possible. And keep checking back in with us as we bring you regular chats with the legends of the game here on the Rugby Centurions podcast. <laughs>